Good evening, everyone. Oh, I didn't hear that. Good evening. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. It's, it's a privilege to be here with you this evening together with my friend and amazing artist and composer Gabriel Prokofiev. So we'll talk a little bit about the program and maybe some about his music as well. Maybe we'll see if we listen to a little bit of it. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how we feel. Um, so thank you for being bold and coming to a, pro a program called Deconstructing Beethoven because we like that guy. We don't want to take him apart. Uh, and the point of this program is that Beethoven is this massive figure in our music history, in Western art history. He was born at the right time to harness his creative energy because he was born at a time when art was going through a transformation, when the continent of Europe was going through a, con uh, a transformation, the Napole Napoleonic Wars, you know, in the 1700s, everything was these kingdoms and everyone ruled their little bit of earth. And then in the 1800s, the idea of a nation state starts to happen, the things that unify us. And of course, that's what we're used to now. Um, although you have a new king, so there's still, there's still some of that. Uh, and um, so while nations are looking for their identity, artists and composers start to have more individuality as well. And the, with the end of the classical era of this elegant music and art, we have the beginnings of, beginnings of the romantic era of putting passion, feeling into what you're doing and owning it, you know, signing your name and connecting that creation and that expression with the person that did it. So Beethoven was perfect for this because he had a lot of he had a lot of issues. I mean, we know his childhood was tortured. He had an abusive alcoholic father. He had to take care of his mother and his siblings. He really wanted to study with Mozart and he was on the way to study with him when his father died and he had to come back and take care of his family. And by the time he got back to Vienna, Mozart was no longer on this earth. Uh, so uh, he, you know, the idea of the tortured artist is, is very synonymous with, with what his childhood was like. And then as a person, he was also kind of a not nice guy, uh, shall we say. Do you don't think so? I, I just think he, he struggled socially. He was oh, like, that's for sure. He, was, he, never, he never really made it with, uh, never got married. He was, fell in love with people that he couldn't. Yeah, um, Un -un unrequited love and then his impending deafness and inability to communicate. But if you think about, if you know anything about his history with his nephew, the custody of his nephew, that's when things get really ugly. Uh, look, at, look at this history. His, his brother died, and he, Beethoven basically said that his nephew's mother was unfit to be a mother, and so he 
sued for custody. And this poor kid was bouncing back and forth between Beethoven and his, his nephew's mother. And um, like, there, there's, more, there's more to it than just social awkwardness. Like, but and anyway, his, he wrote good music. <laughs> So uh, he puts his angst into his music, although maybe not in the Seventh Symphony, which we start out our concert tonight with. And the Seventh Symphony is um, really a sunny piece in, in his output. And it's usually one of the favorites. When people have a favorite symphony of his nine masterpieces, people turn to perhaps the odd numbers, uh, the fifth, the third, the seventh, and ninth. Uh, the other ones are also pretty good. Uh, we're not doing them tonight, though. So the Seventh Symphony is unique in his output because it's generated by dance rhythms. And a lot of Mozart, uh, Mozart a lot of Beethoven's music is generated uh, or is based on rhythmic cells repeating related to Gabriel's music, the idea of loops. Uh, maybe he was previewing what, what we hear now. Uh, and so this is known as kind of his dance symphony. And what I didn't know years ago when I first studied the piece uh, was that Beethoven actually transcribed and arranged Irish songs prior to writing these, the symphony. And so that first movement, it sure sounds like a jig because it probably was. I, I, inspired by. Uh, the second movement of the symphony is so famous for that dum, jump, jump, dum, 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 dum. It, it, in fact, it lacks a melody, and yet it's just incredible. And again, it's the rhythmic and harmonic motion driving it. And I, I have to say about the second movement that when it was premiered, the audience liked it so much that they applauded so much that they didn't let the musicians continue until they played the second movement again. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> but you're welcome to applaud. So people, uh, that, I mean, it's not like they could go home and listen to it on the cassette player. So that was their chance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then, and then the third movement is this wild scherzo. Um, and the fourth movement is another piece that comes out of this Irish tradition. There's a folk song. If you look up, um, it's like Works Without Opus uh, 184, number 8. Go ahead, look that up when you get home. Um, it's, a, it's a dance that's actually in 6-8. But it has this theme, which is absolutely what the theme is of the last movement. So he's getting his, his inspiration from dance, and he turns it into a symphony. I know, you're sitting out here so patiently. Thank no, you. For... I'm, I'm, in, I'm learning a lot. Yes. <laughs> I'm enjoying myself. Yes. So let, let's jump to the second half when we say, okay... Beethoven starts us off, it's unusual, it's on the first half of a concert instead of the end. And why is that? Well, because he is this inspiring figure. So let's look at two very different ways that he inspired people. The first piece we hear on the second half is an overture written in 1834 or 5 by a French woman named Louise Farenc, very, very talented woman whose career as a composer and pianist did not reach the fruition that it might today, 
when we are more accepting of women as performers and creators. To be a French female composer in the 1800s was not really a viable career path. Nonetheless, she wrote some great music. She was on the faculty of the French National Conservatory. In fact, one of the first fully tenured female professor in the piano division, and like the only one for 100 years. Uh, and so we hear her first orchestral piece. And it doesn't sound like Beethoven, but it also does not sound like the music of her French compatriots. Because in the 1800s, mid-1800s, French music, especially in the capital, was mostly centered on opera, and in, even that, in light opera, operettas, cafe music. The only outliers might be somebody like Berlioz, and everyone thought he was crazy. So she writes this piece, which sounds like it belongs in Vienna. It's, it's got depth, it's got gravitas, it's in the minor key, it's telling a story, it's called an overture, but it's clearly some kind of dramatic uh, musical image. And so in that way, she is inspired by this Beethovenian movement which shaped what was coming out of Vienna in the early 1800s, and as the incredible pianist she was, she most certainly knew his sonatas and so develops in that vein. And then we jump forward just about 200 years to 2011, and Gabriel here is writing his first orchestral work and chose to use Beethoven 9 as the jumping-off point, and I don't think I've ever asked why. Um, well, I, I, I actually didn't choose the Beethoven 9. It was a commission from an orchestra in France, and they were doing a big... Uh, concert with they'd been doing a series of Beethoven symphonies and they were coming to the last concert with, with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and they wanted a new work inspired by it and so I was approached by an American conductor, John Axelrod he was aware that I was composing classical music but also I was interested in this idea of remixing which is normally comes out of dance music and pop music, it's when you take a song and you do it in a different style so if you have a a, a song that a lot of people like, but you want to hear it in the discos. You know, you, you maybe put a different a kind of a disco beat or a dance beat under it. You do a new version, like a remix. And then sometimes people even chop up the original music and they kind of loop it. They create something new out of an existing piece, almost like theme and variations, which is a classical form. So I've been doing remixes with classical music. So creating kind of new new pieces that, where you heard little phrases from the original. But I'd been doing that electronically in a studio. And he said, would you do a remix of Beethoven? And first, the idea was I was going to use my computer just to chop up the orchestra, and I'd have one or two singers. I wouldn't have an orchestra. And I said, but this is with this huge orchestra, the Orchestra Nationale de la Paix de Loire. So it's in the Loire Valley, a beautiful part of France. And I said, look, please, I want to write for the orchestra. And he said, okay, well, can you do a remix with the orchestra? So then what I did is I took the Beethoven score and I started chopping it up. Yeah, specifically the last movement. The last movement. Of, of, of Beethoven's ninth. Yeah. Now, did they say Beethoven nine or... It had to be the ninth. It had to be something to do with the ninth. The ninth. It had to be... And they wanted to focus on the Ode to Joy because that comes in the final movement of the ninth symphony. And the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's like this... It's such an important melody for everybody because it means 
all men shall be brothers. It's like this unifying piece of music. So it's exciting to try and do a modern interpretation. I should say that when I was first approached to do it, I was very close to saying no, because I just thought, I do not want to mess with the master, you know. And um, as Yaniv said, Beethoven's this guy. He's on a pedestal. He's the first, some people say he was the first rock star. You know, he's, he's kind of, he, how many people turned up at his funeral? Like the whole of Vienna shut down when he died. Everyone was walking around the street. That had never happened with a musician before, I don't think. And he's still revered, you know, he's still looked up to. So I thought, if I meddle with Beethoven, I'm going to get struck down by, you know, the almighty or the spirit of Beethoven. But when I realised I could work with a big orchestra, I couldn't resist that opportunity. So, in this case, do we follow the trajectory of the ninth, of the last movement? Uh, you play electronics, but your um, source material is comes from the music, right? Yeah. So, before I started working on the piece, I studied the, 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 the structure of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and I realized that the last movement is, it's, I think it's about 26 minutes long, and it's like a symphony in a symphony, and it actually has seven or eight different sections. So I thought, I'm going to follow exactly the same structure. I'm going to follow the story that Beethoven tells with the, the last movement, this celebration of the brotherhood of men, but also there's a lot of drama, there's the kind of fear of a brave new world, of conflict, of war. It's a very dramatic piece. So I wanted to follow exactly the same structure, but from a contemporary standpoint. And in Beethoven's um, last movement, in the third section, the choir come into the music. But I wasn't going to have a choir uh, because there wasn't going to be time for the choir to learn this new piece. So what I did is I recorded the choir in a recording session, and I made samples from the choir, and I chopped up all these samples to create a part that I could play on a sampler with the orchestra. So I'm playing this kind of chopped up, remixed choir. And the way that the choir sounds, I don't think anybody's going to understand any of the words. No, I, I, I really use them as a musical instrument, and I, I to get the, 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 the pitches and the sounds I wanted, I, I just chopped them up a lot, and in fact, the choir even sang the Ode to Joy in several different languages as well. So it's, it's, it was trying to make it a more global, a global version. You know, the Beethoven's time, he was aware of Europe. They were, there was the threat of Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. But they didn't live in the same world we live in now. You know, they didn't have the threat of climate change. They didn't have threat of wars on the other side of the planet. So I wanted to really reflect the, the world we live in now. I like that you mentioned the uh, Turkish because there's a Turkish march yeah. in Beethoven. Uh, so uh, if you think about Mozart, uh, he put some Turkish music in, right? That to them, right, to the you, you know, European composers writing in the 1700s and 1800s, if you put in Turkish music, that was when we were trying to sound foreign, yeah. right? But you replaced that with something quite different. Yeah, well, I thought, so Beethoven did the Turkish march, and I think he did it as a gesture towards the Turkish people, to the Ottomans, who were the kind of enemy of Europe, and he kind of wanted to say, well, actually, no, we are brothers. I can write a Turkish melody. I'm, I'm, it's like an um, olive branch. And I thought, the time when I wrote it, 2011, 2012, that was when the, the whole um, conflict was happening with the Arab world. So I thought, well, 
at the moment, that's who there's this fear in the West of, of the Arab world. So I thought I'm going to do the Turkish march in the Arabic style. And um, so I really turned it into a kind of Arabic style of music. I'm a fan of Egyptian music, so I incorporated that. So that was my, again, a gesture to say, look, we are all brothers. We can enjoy Arab music. We don't have to feel afraid of it. That's a, uh, that's a fun movement to play, and a lot of the people in that movement actually have to clap along. Yeah. So the, the orchestra, if you're, if you're not playing along, you're tapping the rhythm as you would in a, in a big group dance, right? Yeah. Uh, now, let's see, what, how else can we prepare somebody who may not have heard this? Um, there's dissonance, but that's not a bad thing. So your use of dissonance... Um, puts it into your vernacular, right? But then you do this other dance-like thing of looping, right? So how does that work with the orchestra and how does that work with the electronics? Well, I could say that the, the very beginning, in Beethoven's, he has this big chord, he goes... And it's this kind of... In his, it's meant to be kind of terrifying and powerful, but when I, when I hear it now, it, it sounds... Doesn't sound so terrifying because it's yeah we, we we play beautifully like yeah. even even at this uh, at this most intense music we're still trying to play beautifully right yeah and so we lose a little bit of that effect but yours is much more gnarly yeah so I took the same rhythm that Beethoven uses at the beginning of this of the fourth movement of the ninth symphony but I put in a lot of tough um, low brass I made the, all the, the harmony dissonant and, 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 and heavy because I want to say here we are in the 21st century and, and there are some really frightening, challenging things happening in the world but, but that's just the opening then I want to, as the piece goes on there's, there's a lot of warm moments there's some more celebratory moments there's all different moods but as soon as that's happened then we hear the first phrase that you hear in the Beethoven but instead of continuing I put it in a loop and then I put a slow beat under it like in, really in the style of hip-hop music. Or, or, so I, I took a, an element of popular music and put the Beethoven in there, and I was very excited when that really worked, and you have this sort of slow, heavy groove using the Beethoven bass line. We're about 100 years from when George Gershwin introduced classical music to the Symphonic Hall with Rhapsody in Blue. In jazz. It, yeah. In jazz. Yeah. Sorry, did I say it? Uh, yes. When he introduced jazz, yes. Um, and until that point, it seemed like there wasn't going to be crossover from jazz to the symphony hall. And there were a lot of people that were not ready for that and mm. uncomfortable at first. Uh, do you feel like this is a moment now when we are able to bring in more types of music that are, haven't been in the concert hall and combine it here? I, I, I really believe that, I, and I think it's overdue. I mean, you, you started talking this evening about the Seventh Symphony of Beethoven and how that had all these dance dances in it, all these dance rhythms, and those were dances that he, that was happening in his life. They weren't. They sound old to us now. You know, when we say a jig or a minuet, right? A minuet. All the symphonies have a minuet because they dance the minuet. That's what everyone danced to. Now, if if I think of the dance music of right now, if I went out to a, a, a club or a disco or a bar and I wanted to dance, I would probably hear hip-hop music, I might hear soul music, funk music, I might hear house music, techno music. These are the dances of our time. 
Beethoven, his contemporaries, they used the dance music of their time, but that stopped in contemporary music, and I think that's created a big disconnect with contemporary classical and contemporary culture. So I, I feel very strongly that we need to actually engage with the dance rhythms and the, the, the general culture around us rather than get too caught up in our kind of academic approaches. Without getting too detailed, detailed, uh, could you talk a little bit about the, the process of writing a piece of electronic music versus or including a piece of symphonic music? Uh, you talked a little bit about generating ideas the other day, and it was mm. really interesting. So how, how do you come up with the stuff that we're going to hear? Maybe not this one, but something else you're working on. Yeah, I mean, with, with this piece, you know, I already had the material of Beethoven, and what I was doing is I was taking the little phrases from the original piece and seeing how I could shape them into something new. I mean, I can say a bit about it because that's relevant, which is sometimes I would stretch some of the phrases and make them much slower, much longer. Sometimes I would loop them, put them in these loops, and they build up these textures. This is the electronic one part, not the orchestra part. No, that's the orchestral part. Orchestral part, too. Yeah, the orchestral part. I would, I would, yeah, I would loop some sections, I would stretch some sections, I would change, I would invert the notes, or I'd make the intervals get bigger, so it sort of is stretched in a vertical way as well as a horizontal way. And um, so there's, in the second movement, I use what was the counter melody, the kind of accompanying melody, I put that as the main melody. And then that brings out a really different character, but it's still clearly Beethoven. I mean, my, my approach for, for composing generally is that I, first I, I think about what I'm trying to achieve with the piece of music, and then I do a lot of sketching, a lot of sketches. I just try to put myself in a place where I feel very relaxed, and I can just let the ideas out. And I just keep sketching and sketch more material than I need, and then slowly a few weeks later, I go through those sketches when I've forgotten about them. And with fresh ears, I can kind of build, use them as building blocks to create a bigger piece. And when you say you make sketches, uh, when Beethoven... Beethoven was perhaps one of the most famous sketching composers hmm. because he, he worked on his craft... And we have notebooks and notebooks of notebooks of materials. When he's like, da 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 da, you know, <laughs> no, that wasn't right. Da 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 da. You know, like it, he actually worked on it to to make it come out the way he wanted to. But I'm I'm imagining you have a very different tool. Well, I mean, sometimes um, I ha I come up with an idea when I'm out out and about. I, I use a bicycle. I live in London and I cycle everywhere. So it's actually the fastest way to travel in London. And um, the, the, the act of cycling and moving is very... Um, it, it kind of gets ideas going. So sometimes I'm cycling around and I suddenly have an idea and then I stop my bicycle, I take out my phone and I sing the idea into my memo on the phone and, and, and then I say a few words because sometimes the singing might not be that clear. So then when I get back home, I can quickly notate down what I've come up with. But a lot of the time I compose in my studio and then I have a keyboard connected to a computer and I can play in my ideas. And rather than then write them down, the computer remembers them. It's like, it's like typing into a word processor. And then so I have them played in and then I can... Play, keep those ideas playing in a cycle and I can play new ideas on top 
then I can transpose them, I can copy them, I move them around. So I use the, the computer as a tool. Um, and I, I think it's an ev a direct evolution of how composers worked before. A lot of composers, Beethoven included, would write at the piano, but they would just quickly write it down on the paper. And then, yeah, they would perhaps keep it in their heads, or they would play it on the piano and play on top. So I'm just using the technology to make it easier. So um, I can relate because I also compose, uh, mm. and I often generate material at the piano. And now that we have the keyboards hooked up to the computer, writing it out takes so much time. It feels so slow. Yeah. And sometimes it's good to slow down and make sure you have it. But I find that I do a similar thing, which is generate the material, and then almost as fast as possible, it goes into the computer where I can start to manipulate it. And also, you can have, at, it's remarkable with the samples of sounds of orchestras in your computer, you can have the sound of the symphony played back at you, which is a benefit to some ways, because you can get this overarching sense of how it goes. Mm. But, of course, the computer doesn't tend to play very musically. Mm. And the computer can play things that are impossible for people to do, either rhythmically yeah. or just, you know, some fingers only go a certain way. And you, you might, you know, you still need to have an idiomatic underst or yeah. an understanding of what is idiomatic for people. Yeah. You still have to know what's possible exactly. You can't. We only have a few more minutes left on stage, so I'm wondering if anybody has any, I should have asked earlier, some, some burning questions for Gabriel or myself, or if not, we can pontificate. Yes. I'm wondering what you're able to do uh, with the computer these days compared to the synthesizer or the beginning of electronic music. So the question is about the evolution of electronic music and how has that changed and what, do, what can you do with synthesizers now or what's easier now than, say, 20 or 30 years ago? Well, it's interesting, actually, because there's been a revival of the old synthesizers and a lot of people are going back to the older technology because they're fed up of staring at a screen all the time. And I think everyone in these days gets a bit tired of looking at screens because they're everywhere in our lives. And, and that's definitely the downside. I mean, what, what's with the computer, what's good is you can, in terms of electronic music, is you can map out the structure of your music better and you have a you pretty much have a limitless amount of voices and instruments that you can layer. In the past, you know, you, each sound you wanted had to have a separate synthesizer. And so as soon as you got to a certain number of voices, you, 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 you didn't have room for any more synthesizers. You'd have to record them and then layer it on top. Whereas now you can just, inside the computer, you can keep adding more instruments so you can build more complex structures. And you can, yeah, you, you, you have kind of more freedom but um, I don't, the changes aren't as big as, as we would think, actually. That's what's interesting. I mean, there, there's a lot of good things that got lost with the computer. So that's why people like to go back to the old technology sometimes. And sometimes you are sampling things, like in the case of the remix today, yeah. you've sampled the chorus. But uh, do you also then create sounds from scratch using a Nord or whatever? Like, do you use the synthesizers to create a virtual instrument that then you can write for? I mean, I, 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 on other compositions, I use synthesizers um, because I really like the sounds they make. But 
it's sometimes a synthetic synthesizer doesn't mix with an orchestra so well, you know, so it's, then that, that's a different sound world, so you treat that in a different way. And I think with electronics, it's so broad, the range of sounds, that I'm just always thinking carefully about what's, what's needed in this piece. You know, in, in this work, it had to be the choir because that was part of the original, you know, and it, the idea is to remix the Beethoven. All right, well, um, it, that was so fascinating, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. And at this point, we have to actually get off the stage so the musicians can warm up. Uh, so we won't get to hear anything coming out of this setup, and so it will be a little bit of a surprise. Yeah for those who have yet to hear it. Uh, it's a wonderful piece that culminates this evening's uh, tribute to, in a way, and celebration of who Beethoven was and how his music and legacy is still relevant to us today. So I just want to thank you again for coming because we like to play music for ourselves, but it's even better when you're here. So thank you. Enjoy the concert. Thank you, Gabriel. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Yanni. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.